Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Greetings to all of my brothers and sisters listening right now. After one year, we're finally back and welcome to the Remastered Podcast. I would like to welcome all of you once again uh, from wherever you're listening to. This is a podcast dedicated to uh, real life conversations surrounding uh, Muslims across the U.S. and around the globe. My name and I have the honor of being your host is Abdullah Freeman. I'm joining you all live from Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, I'm here joined with my two wonderful guests. Uh, before we get into that, I'd like to just say thank you to uh, the team, uh, Muslim American Society, those who helped so for us to bring this back, um, everybody involved in the process, those who want to be named and unnamed. Also, big shout out to Layla. Uh, mm-hmm. She was the uh, former uh, podcast host who uh, got me this opportunity. So, But let's proceed, you know, without any further wasting the time, because I can tell the uh, two guests, they really, we had a great pre-show uh, discussion. Today, I'm joined by two wonderful guests. The first is an associate professor of Arabic and Islamic studies and director of the Arabic language program at Brandeis University, as well as an affiliated adjunct associate professor. We got Dr. Carl Sharif El-Tubgi. The other guest uh, is the current president of Mass Boston, as well as a wonderfully involved wonderfully involved in youth work in their community. And we have Sister Asma Al-Kabti. Um, assalamu alaikum to both of you guys. How are you guys doing? Wa alaikum salam. Fine. Alhamdulillah. How are you? Well, uh, thank you for having me, and uh, I'm really looking forward to having this really important conversation. SubhanAllah, I, we've been having these conversations um, in our local masajid and hadaqas for quite some time. So uh, thank you to Mass for hosting this um, so we can actually kind of bring this conversation to on the national level, inshallah. So what we'll be discussing here today, guys, is navigating Pride Month. So as you guys may all know that uh, the month of June has been uh, dedicated to celebrating Pride Month, which is uh, specifically for the LGBTQ plus community. Right. Um, This is a month in which they uh, celebrate their um, uh, what what they would call their heritage and their beliefs and things of that nature. And it's uh, been increasing around the U.S. people's involvement and things of that nature. So this conversation is dedicated to how to navigate that as Muslims, right? From a, a anecdotal, a societal perspective, you know, and so, uh, definitely from religious viewpoint as well. Um, we have uh, the first segment really that I want to get to is just the overall Muslims community's uh, opinion of this uh, topic of LGBTQ plus. Now, if you guys, you guys live, both live in Boston or not Boston, but in Massachusetts, of course. Right. Um, Can you guys speak to the uh, perspectives and uh, different opinions you guys hear regarding that in terms of the old versus the young? Dr. Shetty, I'll let you go first. <laughs> um, you can go ahead, sister. That's fine. Okay. Anyone, um, don't worry. It's, it's, it's everybody. Uh, so, so I mean, at least from um, my interactions with the, my community, I've seen that uh, pretty much the the older generations, um, the parents, pretty much kind of find this idea as very like foreign and very like strange. Like, why, why, why is this trying to be normalized? It is, it, it is not the normal around the world and throughout human history, right? So, uh, you know, it's it's a very strange concept to to to. Um, you know, all of a sudden change kind of like the binary reality of our biology that we're male and female and that's how we are born um, to then kind of say like, no, 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 like this has multiple identities. Um, uh, but for the younger generation who have been, uh, especially honestly, attending public schools um, uh, and and if you watch a lot of TV, um, then you've been exposed to these um, concepts for quite a few years now. 
and uh, and and now it's coming like you know with full force, um, <clears throat> where anybody who who wants to speak up against it, against this ideology, is uh, is shamed into being like, oh well, you're you're just you know homophobic, you're this phobic, you're that phobic, right? And um, you know, uh, the conversation is very emotionally charged right now, and it's less of a scientific um, kind of uh, level-minded conversation, and it's more—it's a very emotionally charged conversation, which is very hard to have um, because there's no winner. It's just you hate me. I, you, how could you not? You know. Um, so it's uh, it's uh, it's a difficult conversation for sure to have, especially for the younger youth, where they're surrounded by people who have been kind of almost indoctrinated with this ideology. Yeah, I think, you know, um, just to pick up on what Sister Asmat said, I mean, we've seen a massive paradigm shift in the Western world over the last, you know, 30 to 50 years um, that is accelerating, or at least the effects of it are accelerating with time. Um, and it can seem to many people as if this came out of nowhere. But in fact, there are precedents and there are, you know, seeds that have been planted a long time ago. And the thing is that, you know, uh, everyone looks at the world through a particular paradigm or a particular prism, and you take certain things for granted. And I think what we see here is there is a, there's been a massive shift in the basic presuppositions that are held by the older generation versus those that are held by the younger generation. I mean, just basic things about what, what gender it even is, whether it's something real, i.e. objectively real or just socially constructed, which is what the new paradigm uh, claims. Uh, whether, you know, what, what sex is, you know, the sexual act, what, what is it? Does it have any meaning? Uh, does it have any moral rules that govern it or not, right? For an older generation, yes, there are moral rules. There is a sexual morality per se. For the younger generation who has been raised in the post-sexual revolution West, right, the sexual revolution revolts against any idea that sexuality should be governed by any moral structure other than just pure personal consent, so you have youth who are growing up bathed in this environment where sex is considered no big deal. It's a personal choice. There are no moral, objective moral rules that govern it. It just comes down to each person's kind of sovereign, autonomous choice as to what they do with their own body and things like that. I mean, all of this is, is basically bunk from an Islamic perspective and from any traditional religious perspective or even non-religious perspective. If you take classical Greek ethics, for example, also, you know, in other ethical systems, this idea that you can just, that sexuality has no kind of rules that govern it is just preposterous because it's such a, I mean, it's such a central aspect of life and has such potential to, I mean, to do harm if it's not properly channeled, that no ethical system has ever treated it as casually as contemporary society does. And the thing is that it doesn't do that with impunity, right? I mean, the the bill of the sexual revolution is humongous and it's coming in, right? In, in terms of destroyed families, destroyed lives, you know, uh, you know, there are arguments being made that, that that even like women, for example, have fared so much worse in so many ways. I mean, they've advanced in certain respects, but they've also been put back in so many other ways by the sexual revolution that you start to have now in some quarters, almost a counter-revolution or some people talking about a counter-revolution because there's so much misery and destruction that's been wrought by this chaos, right? But th this is like the larger picture that most people don't see because as Sister Asimat said, they're just in the thick of it. And they've been given a very particular curated discourse 
that when we talk about issues of sexuality, particularly homosexuality and now transgenderism, we are talking first and foremost about identity and about rights and about dignity and about people's, you know, kind of affirmation and so forth. This is a very, very particular framing of the issue, which ignores everything else that I just said, right? Ignores the reality of gender. It ignores the reality of sexuality and what it's all about and what rules govern it or should govern it. It kind of tables all of that and says none of that matters, right? All of that's been X'd out. And the only thing that we need to focus on is people's kind of subjective sense of identity and whether everyone else is kind of affirming of that or not. That's the only consideration. And if that's your paradigm, then there's not much of a discussion to be had. It's like, are you a bigot or do you kind of like affirm everyone's right to do whatever they want and kind of be celebrated in doing what they want, right? But how impoverished of a discourse is that, right? Like it's just so narrowly defined, but again, people can't see it because it's so pervasive and being pushed so, so strongly and so aggressively uh, that any other kind of perspective has effectively been drowned out. And unfortunately for Muslim youth facing that, you know, even Islamic like perspectives on the issue, right, that, that flow from just kind of basic Islamic commitments, theological, moral, ethical, legal, um, seem to be something that they're alienated from, right, which is, which is a very serious problem. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Sister Asma. I think I, I, just to add to that comment, like it's just that um, I think it's also like with the sexual revolution, there's also the like um, distance from religion. Like we as a society, especially in the U.S. Um, and I, I dare say also in Europe, you know, people no longer believe in the Bible or, you know, they just they, they've left the Judeo-Christian kind of narrative. They don't like it. They're, oh, it has too many problems. And they just walked away. I'm agnostic. <laughs> There's a God somewhere. That's it. <laughs> and I'm going to live my life. <clears throat> and so when you, when you don't have a very clear value system, then you become easy prey for any ideology to come and take over um, your mind and your, and your society. You know, one interesting point you brought up, uh, uh, Dr. Sharif, is about um, the this degeneration of the morality, right? Because you see the same thing happen in Europe in the 1700s with the Renaissance period, Enlightenment period, and things of that nature. Could you speak a little bit briefly? Because I know that's something your uh, some of your expertise is on as to that uh, that the connection between that and that uh, degeneration that happens in a uh, society with morals and where it could eventually lead to. Sure. I mean, and this picks up on what Sister Asmat just said. I mean, it, in the West, I mean, so the whole modern paradigm, which really starts, you know, I mean, you can trace it back to the Renaissance as you did. And then you have the, um, so that's mostly like 15th, 16th century. Then you have the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. You have the scientific revolution of the 17th century, the enlightenment of the 18th century, right? And then you have the 19th century, which has often been described as the period of the secularization of the European mind. In fact, there's a book by a uh, British uh, professor and intellectual named uh, Owen Chadwick called The Secularization of the European Mind in the 19th Century. And I always point out to students that in the early 19th century, you could not be hired in a university, a European university, if you were known to be an atheist. It's like, how could we possibly put an atheist in front of our youth to teach them? Like, what kind of person is this? Where are they getting their morals from? How could you trust them? Like, this is just was so, even in the early 18th century, just way, way off the charts. By the end of the, sorry, by 19th century, by the end of the 19th century, so the 1800s, you have Nietzsche in his famous, obviously blasphemous phrase, God is dead, 
right? Just in 50, 60 years. So, so really you have this, the trickle down effect, right? Now trickling down from what really, I think the enlightenment, if you look at it, 18th century philosophical movement, which is kind of in, in one sense, a reaction to the scientific revolution, uh, also a reaction to the political circumstances in Europe at the time in the 18th century. Uh, this is pre-French revolution, pre-American revolution. Um, and Enlightenment ideas very much inform, you know, both the French Republic and the American kind of project. Um, but in general, what you have is a decisive turn away from religion, a turn away from metaphysics, a turn away from the transcendent. This idea that belief in God, which was completely taken for granted before, has now become a very problematic proposition, something that we can't really know. Uh, you know, you could believe it if you want, but we can't really have knowledge about this. And of course, you had after the Protestant Reformation, you had like a lot of bloodletting uh, in Europe between Protestants and Catholics, which lasted for a good you know century and a half. Um, and so the solution to this was let's just put religion aside, kind of been there, done that. Now we have this new science also, which has given us this powerful new tool to understand the world. This is going to be sufficient for us, as Immanuel Kant said in his um, essay. You know what is enlightenment? He says man has come of age now, right? Human beings are we're now mature. Before we were believing in kind of, you know, Santa Claus, like sort of fairy tale type things, although he believed in God, but still, you know, the idea was that human beings are now basically autonomous and part of that autonomy meant moral autonomy. So the larger project of the enlightenment was to base all of human knowledge on reason alone, essentially reason and empirical science. So this is knowledge about the world, also knowledge about morals and ethics, right? How do we know what is right? How do we know what is wrong? Uh, traditionally, even for much of the modern period on the level of the everyday street, religion has kind of retained the role of moral arbiter for many people. Even when I was growing up in the like, 80s, you know, I'm not that old, uh, a lot of people were like, well, you know, yeah, religion isn't the Bible or whatever. It's not there to tell you. I mean, even Galileo said the Bible is not there to, is to tell you how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. <laughs> right. In other words, like let science deal with the cosmology. Right. But religion is there to tell, talk about morals and kind of the afterlife and metaphysics and eschatology and so forth. And I think for a lot of people, at least in America, particularly until quite recently, that was still a very widespread notion. Right. Like we depend on religion for our basic moral values, especially when it comes to things like family and gender and sexuality and other things as well. And and. Uh, and what you get, though, is this enlightenment paradigm, which starts at the level of intellectuals and then it trickles down. So it takes time to trickle down, right? But the but the gears have been set in motion a long, long time ago. And European thought, as we said, was kind of secular. The European mind was secularized. And I, when I say Western, European mind was secularized in the 19th century. And in the 20th century, you know, you do have religion kind of hanging on, but it's really a shell where, but but the, you know, the in, inside of it, like the substance have, has been gutted out basically. And that's why I think, you know, that what we've seen since the 1960s, you know, so you have basically a gradual chipping away of religious authority uh, over the last couple of centuries. Uh, part, part uh, you, you know, biblical criticism also had a, a lot to do with this. When people started looking at the Bible critically, they realized, okay, the, the, the text actually has a lot more issues than they thought, you know, it did before, which is very different from the Quran, right? But people lost confidence also in the Bible. And so the authority of the Bible was completely undermined, right? Um, plus, you know, add that to these notions of human autonomy, freedom, uh, the, the man is now mature and can, kind of master of his own destiny, not standing under a god anymore, so to speak. Um, and you, and, and every, all of the kind of dominoes are in place 
for what we see, you know, in the 1960s. And I think like if you look at what happened basically uh, before the birth control pill, which comes out, I believe, in 1959, uh, you know, sex has consequences. Men and women have intercourse and pregnancy is a very likely outcome of that. And you simply cannot have women getting pregnant left and right outside of marriage and kids being born out of wedlock. It's just social chaos. Right. I mean, children need to be conceived within environments where they are ready to be received um, and so forth. So I don't think it makes much sense pre the pill for any society to have other than what would today be considered a more, quote unquote, conservative sexual morality. You simply can't because sex has consequences for the first time when you have now the birth control pill. Not that people didn't have other forms of birth control before, but they were not that reliable. Now you have the pill. All of a sudden, people say we can actually separate sex from its natural consequences. And because we can basically suppress the uh, eventuality of pregnancy and engage in the act kind of, you know, without consequences, this radically changes the equation. And it's precisely at that time, right, also with the rise of second wave feminism, that you get this kind of massive rejection now on the level of sexual morality of like Christian morals and ethics, right, which had been pretty much intact up until that time. And so you get this radical rejection of the notion that sex must be confined to marriage, which was very much the standard in the United States up until the late 1960s. Um, not that people didn't have zina, but like it was very much frowned upon. It was certainly not what was considered normative. Uh, and it was considered wrong by the vast majority. They did polls back then, and the vast majority of Americans said, yes, sex outside of marriage is immoral. It's wrong. You know, you can't do it. Um, or, or you're, you're an immoral person if you do it. So all of this is radically rejected. And the reason I think this is possible is because I think the moral conviction behind this had already been so gutted and weakened, like I said, and kind of gutted out, that all you needed was the catalyst of something like the pill to say, okay, now you can actually engage in this without the consequences. And then boom, the, the moral facade just kind of fell because that's all it was. It was a facade. Whereas if you look at other parts of the world, right, the pill becomes available. I mean, in one form or another, once it's invented, it's out there. But you don't see a sexual revolution in the Muslim world. You don't see a sexual revolution in China. You don't see a sexual revolution in sort of the non-Western world, right? So there are cultural reasons for that as well. And I think the reason for that in the Muslim world is that you know, Islam as a religion is still much more intact than Christianity is in the West. And therefore, Islamic morals and values, particularly on things like marriage and gender and sexuality, are still very normative for Muslims in Muslim societies, right? And so the mere, uh, you know, presence of a birth control pill doesn't all of a sudden override, you know, people's larger uh, ethical uh, commitments and moral commitments and their larger sort of worldview, right, which is a term I like to use. And so I think that's important uh, as well. You know, I mean, this is all happening within a very specific cultural context um, that's very specific to the West. Of course, the West sees itself perpetually as universal, right? And, and its paradigm as, as universally valid that must be imposed on everyone across the world. This has been going on since, you know, the days of colonialism. And now we're in the days of neocolonialism. It's very much the same attitude. The West knows best, whatever we're doing, although it's changing every five years, but wherever we are today, it, we immediately kind of transcendentalize our current moment, uh, universalize it, and it becomes like the marching orders for the entire world, which is really farcical if you're looking at it from outside of the West. It's like, how can you possibly have such hubris, you know, to think that, that you just get to call the shots when you're constantly flip-flopping yourselves and have no clear direction, right? But wherever we are in the West today, that's kind of, you know, we've just sort of been blessed with this kind of 
you know, we're in this unique position to kind of, um, you know, discern the ultimate truth, right? That's constantly unfolding. This is the idea of progress, which is also very much an 18th century notion. So anyway, yeah. I'll just stop there, but <laughs> that's kind of the larger, I think, background. Just off of that was, that, that's exactly, that was the exact, it gives us a good base. Um, I'm going to come back because there's actually a point that's related to one of the other points we'll talk about that one asked. But to, let Sister Asma start off with this point. Uh, Sister Asma, you know, you're very involved with the youth work, you know. So let's say somebody around the age of like 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, they come to you and they're like, Sister Asma, like, I have a question. Okay. What's the question? Well, you know, um... Uh, I have a friend and they said they're, they're, they're gay or they're lesbian or they think they're trans. And, you know, what is that? Is that, is it fine? Like, can we still be friends? What if I'm feeling like that? Or what if they come to you and they say, oh, I'm feeling like this. And it's a question for you as well, Dr. Uh, Sharif. Basically, you know, how do we, with the younger generations and as things have become normalized in their world, right? These people are born post social media, post uh, all these technological revolution, like, uh, developments, right? So in their life, the world is different into what they're coming into. They see it a lot more. Things are more prominent, right? Even in, you see it in dress, right? Like my mom, when she sees certain short dresses, she wants to like flip out and destroy something. To me, I'm not saying it's right, but it's more normalized to me because I'm like, this is what we grew up seeing, right? So how do you address your youth when it comes to you with stuff like that? And what are ways like just to tackle that issue in itself? Right. Um, so honestly, I usually kind of uh, ask questions. <laughs> so I'll, I'll kind of probe with the youth to see what they're saying. What are they thinking? Um, and, 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 and that is because, you know, um, you know, it's very easy to be like, oh, halal, haram, you know, whatever. But I, I want you to have conviction in what you're doing, right? Because that's what's going to help you navigate the world for the rest of your life. And, um, and for me, that's what helped me, you know, if you will, uh, inshallah, inshallah, stay the path, uh, and, uh, you know, may Allah, you know, keep us steadfast, but, you know, it, it takes, um, connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and understanding who Allah is, right? Because when I say halal haram, I think halal haram police, you know, and I'm like, oh, like that doesn't sound fun. Right. So then, so I don't want to do that. Right? I want to live free. Um, and so if I'm going to submit my ego to something, I really need to recognize how valuable it is or why I should do that. Right. And this is kind of one of the amazing things in Islam. Right. When you become Muslim, you say, I bear witness that there is no God. So I will not submit my ego to anybody except Allah. Right. And he's my creator. Right. And so, subhanAllah, when we um, read the Qur'an, you see a lot of miracles in the Qur'an. And this is where I always encourage the youth to read the Qur'an, connect with the Qur'an, um, because there are so many miracles that are in the Qur'an. The Qur'an is the living miracle um, that is with us. Even though the Prophet, peace be upon him, passed away, his miracle continues to the end of time. And so uh, it is addressing us. And it is talking to us individually and as a community. And so when you, um, you know, for me, things that I, I'm a scientist. So things that really affect me are the scientific miracles of the Quran. And when I see, you know, like in Surah Al-Alaq, which we all know the first verse that Jibreel, you know, read to the prophet and told him, Iqra, read. And he pulled him by the collar, right? He told him, read in the name of your Lord who created, he created the human, al-insana, min alaq. From alaq. And when you take that word alaq 
and you diagnose it from a linguistic perspective, from the Arabic language, alaq is a clot of blood or like sitting blood. It's stagnant. It's not circulating. Alaq is something that's hanging. Alaq is something that's a leech. Like literally the leech, when you when you see a leech, like that's, oh, that's alaq, right? <laughs> because it literally sticks to you and hangs on to you. Um, now, we, if, with alhamdulillah, our, our, our scientific progress and our microscopes and everything like that, when we studied embryology, we were able to see, this was back in the 70s, for the first time that the human embryo in the first two weeks of conception is literally a alaq, where it's developed into, it has blood, but the heart still didn't start beating. So it's stagnant blood, it's hanging in the womb, and it's, it's stuck to the wall and sucking nutrients from the wall of the uterus, like a leech, right? And, and so when Allah says, we created the human from a halaq, he's talking about that first phase before the heart starts beating, because at two weeks it starts beating and then until we die, the heart is beating, right? So subhanAllah, like the, the heart itself is a miracle too, but the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala named this surah al-alaq, and it was the first verses revealed to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he's talking about the first phase in our creation as individual human beings, like that's pretty amazing, right? Like this Qur'an is obviously from the God who knows me inside out, who knows all the phases of my development. Am I going to trust him when he tells me, hey, this is good for you, this is bad for you, right? This is the God who wrote, who gave me surah al-tariq, Right, so the Tariq also in Juz Amma, which you know sometimes they say it's it's the it literally means in Arabic the one who's knocking, right? Um, who's knocking? Who's knocking on the door? And and you probably know so many people named Tariq after this surah. And Allah says he, he swears by the heavens and the Tariq. And then Allah says, and what do you know what the Tariq is? How could you know? There's no way you're gonna know what it is. And He says it's the piercing star. Now in the last decade, we've heard that knocking sound it's the pulsar uh star it's a neutron star right and it's this crazy powerful star subhanallah that uh is emitting gamma rays like it's literally uh, irradiating everything around it no planets can exist because it literally destroys everything around it um and it's and it has a pulse it has this like consistent rhythm and it literally, we've NASA like released the sounds just like these last few years, and it literally sounds like somebody hammering, like you got a metal clinging, ding, 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 right? Like that's we just found this out now. Like we just heard it now in the last decade, in the last few years, we heard it. But Allah told it to us fourteen hundred years ago. Like this is the God of the of the cosmos. This is the God of the cells and the embryos. Like this is the God who knows everything in our universe and beyond inside out. So if he tells me this is good for me, am I going to trust him? That's the choice that I make and you make. We have to, we have to decide that. Do I want to, do I really believe in Allah? Do I really believe in the Quran that this is the word of God and the divine, right? And the, and then when you read the Quran, the first story mentioned in the Quran, Allah says that I told the angels, I'm going to create a leader on this earth. This earth is special. It's unique. And I'm going to create a leader on it. And the shaitan was very upset and envious. You made him from dirt and I'm from fire. The first racist, the first area, right? 
he is I'm better than him. Why? Just because of the material that we were originally created from. And he lies to Adam, our father, and he says, why did Allah forbid that one tree from this whole heaven full of trees? That one tree is wrong. Don't eat it. Hmm. I bet you God's made it forbidden so that you don't uh, become immortal. Or maybe you'll become an angel if you eat from that tree. What is that implying? What that's implying is that Allah doesn't want what's good for you. Allah is out to get you. Allah is out to humiliate you. Is that true? It's actually the opposite. The shaitan is lying right now and deceiving us into distrusting Allah. What happened was Allah told the angels to bow down to us. Not maybe you'll become an angel. Dude, the angels prostrated to you. You're at a higher level than the angels. Allah gave you a higher post. But the shaitan is deceiving you, making you look down and think maybe that's better. Right? And Allah's telling you, I'm going to elevate you. And the shaitan's like, no, 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 no. It's better to go down. Look, it's so cool and sparkly down there. Right? This is the deception of the shaitan. Who am I going to believe? The one who created me, who wants to elevate me and honor me, who wants what's good for me, who knows everything in this universe inside out, or the one who's going to lie to me and deceive me. So I have to make that connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I have to make that choice and decision. And once I make that commitment that, you know what? Yes, yeah, Allah, I believe in you, and I'm going to trust you. I've had youth ask me, like, Asma, why, um, why can't, you know, uh, gay couples in Islam be married? Like, they're going to be committed. They're not going to cheat. They're not this. They're not that. Like, khalas, like, let them live together and they're in love and everything is happy. Right? And ultimately, you know, I don't have all the wisdom behind why Allah made something halal or haram. I might have some insights, you know, from medical and scientific and whatever um, observations that we've had so far. But ultimately, the wisdom is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I have to acknowledge that my knowledge is shortcoming, but I'm still going to believe what Allah says is right and what Allah says is wrong. Our ancestors didn't know about this alaq. Our ancestors didn't know about this tariq. They read the Qur'an. Ya Allah, I believe this, but I personally don't. I didn't see this poster star. I didn't hear it. <laughs> right? But they, they believed it. And they, and they committed to Allah. They made that choice because they saw other ayats, other miracles that connected with them and their society. So that's it. I believe. It's not blind faith. I saw the miracles. I saw the signs. It makes sense. So the other stuff that maybe doesn't make sense because I as a human in my society, we didn't get to that point yet of, 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 of discovery. Does that mean that it negates the discovery? No. My desires are going to shift from day to day. Right? The heart in Arabic is called al-qalb. And al-qalb is literally thing that turns. One day I like it, the next day I don't. <laughs> it changes. And so is that something consistent? Is that really a value system? Like Dr. Sharif just explained to us how the value systems have been changing as people were kind of just, I'm going to try to figure it out. And things are changing. Is that good? Well, there should be an ultimate basic right is right and wrong is wrong, right? I mean, soon enough, we're going to get to like murder, murder is okay. And, you know, rape is okay. And everything is okay. Because we're, I can make an argument about, well, it's my free will, 
right? So, so oh no, today we draw the line that it should not infringe on other people's rights. Well, tomorrow we're going to erase that line and now it's going to be okay, right? So who sets these boundaries? For us as Muslims, as people who believe in God, we agree that the one who created us, he's the one who knows us best and he's the one who knows how to best set those boundaries for our own benefit and our own welfare. Um, and so it's kind of like the um, uh, like the hadith of the Prophet where he says every king has a, has kind of their the the no trespass zone, right? Uh, Wait, can, can you repeat the hadith? You kind of like faded out. Oh, sorry. So so the Prophet says for every king there's a there's kind of like a no trespass zone, um, a private section. You're not supposed to get in there. And the hima of Allah is maharimah. The, 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 the no trespass zone for Allah is the stuff that he made haram. Don't trespass. So for us, he said, don't. So for the herd, you know, when you're a shepherd and you've got your herd, don't go near that line where all of a sudden you'll just cross right over. Kind of keep your distance from there. But, but the idea is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't make something haram without giving us protections to help us avoid it. Right. So he says there's so many ayats. One ayah, he says, believing men, lower your gaze and protect your chest. Believing women, lower your gaze. What does that mean? Because if I look and keep checking people out, I, it's going to start affecting my heart. It's going to affect how I think. It's going to start affecting my emotions. And that's ultimately going to affect my actions. Right. So Allah says, protect your gaze. He says, how you dress, dress modestly. How you walk, walk modestly. Literally, there's different ayats about each one of these. How you dress, how you walk, how you talk, especially for the, the women, right? Allah SWT is saying these things. Why? To protect us and to protect our community. How? Allah SWT tells us for the women to dress modestly and to cover, uh, you know, with loose clothing, uh, that is not sheer, that is not descriptive. But in front of other men, uh, in front of my father, my husband, my son, my brother, I don't have to cover fully. I can show my hair. I can wear a t-shirt. That's halal. Okay. And in front of other women. And the awra, the basic awra that the Prophet ﷺ told us from the navel to the knee, what is between the navel and the knee for both men, men amongst men, and women amongst women. This is like unanimously agreed upon by the scholars. We must cover. Well, why? I'm not attracted to women. It doesn't matter. No, Allah says you need to cover that region even in front of other women. Even if they're your family. Again, uh, unless it's a medical necessity or something else like that, an emergency or, or something. But otherwise, you need to be covered. Why? Because ultimately, as a human being, if you keep seeing something, you're going to start developing feelings, interest. That's just how humans are. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set those boundaries for us. There was a hadith of the Prophet where he said that once the children get to the age of like pretty much approximately seven, when their teeth start falling and, you know, once when we need to start telling them to pray, which is between the ages of six and seven years old, he said, you need to separate the children in their beds. Have them sleep separately. So every kid has their own bed. And if you can't have them in their own bed, have each kid with their own blanket. Their bodies, their naked bodies should not come into contact with each other. 
boys and boys, girls and girls, boys and girls, they need to be separated once they hit that six and seven years of age. Why, Ya Rasulullah, they're brothers and sisters. It's a... Because we, we're not going to wait until negative things happen, things that violate the moral values that Allah set for us. Allah is giving us the protections to help us not even get there, right? So we have the fitrah, the natural human uh, kind of instinct is that there's an attraction between the male and the female. And that's important for the survival of the race, right? The human race. Otherwise, we don't reproduce and we all go extinct, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put that instinct in us. And it's very natural. And, and actually, the Prophet says, when you fulfill that instinct in marriage, you get rewarded for it. So doing it the halal way is perfectly fine and actually encouraged. But doing it outside of the halal way, now we need to stop. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does he tell us? He, tell us, he tells us that the women need to speak modestly, not to be too familiar. Even if a man is interested in marrying a woman, he needs to speak kind of in a modest way, in a hinting way, especially if let's say she's a widow or something like that. And she's in her idda. You can't be like, oh, I love you and I want to marry you. And like, whoa, hold up, hold up, <laughs> hold up. She's still, even though her husband is dead, she's still technically his wife until the idda is done. So you need to wait before you can formally propose, right? Uh, or sign the contract. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set these rules and regulations for us. Okay, so ya Allah, like why, what? Well, here's the thing. You know, and this is kind of the question when it comes to like, well, you know, um, if you're, if you're, if you have these um, kind of uh, lesbian or gay feelings, homosexual feelings, you can never fulfill those desires. But if you're heterosexual, you can get married Islamically and fulfill that desire. Yes, but guess what? I could be attracted to a lot of people, but Allah told me I can only be with this one person who's my spouse. What does that mean? That means I have to curb my desires. I have to lower my gaze. I have to not get too friendly and familiar with those other people because they're not my halal. Again, for both man and woman, right? Like you you have to curb your emotion. There's a line that you have to draw for yourself that you're going to say, I will not cross this line. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us what that line is. Now it's my choice to actually commit to that or not. So let's say the youth comes to you and says, all right, well, I'm not interested uh, in a, romantically in anybody, but I have friends who are a part of this and they're cool people. They're really nice to me. We hang out. What's wrong with being friends with them? What's wrong with hanging around them? What's wrong with supporting them? Like they, they asked me to sign this thing, or maybe when not when they're at that age, they ask them to sign anything. But what's wrong with liking this show that has these characters that are gay? Like what, you know? So let me go back to So I think, you know, everything that Sister Asmat just said is gold, mashallah. I mean, it's really on point. Um, I think it's really important to um, establish the general paradigm, right? If, if Because if you tell us, um, children or Muslim youth in general, okay, well, Allah says, Allah forbade this, or this is haram, and they, or or, or this is clear in the Quran, right? Like the Quran is unambiguous on this point, and they don't know what the Quran is. I mean, they kind of do like, they, they know what to say about the Quran, right? They know they're supposed to say it's the word of God, but they don't really, really understand what that means, right? Um, you're not going to get very far with them. But if you can, 
if you can establish that larger paradigm that, wait a minute, this is actually the word of the creator of the universe. Like that's a big deal, right? That's not just, it's not just a book and it's not just somebody's opinion. And it's not just like a, you know, uh, a text among texts or something like that, right? Like this is the, the word of the, of, of the, of the creator of the universe, right? And he's the one who knows what's best for us because he created us. He knows us. He knows reality, right? We are just guessing as human beings without divine guidance, but he actually knows because he created, right? Um, it's really important to establish that because it's not just LGBT, right? It's it's many other questions, even like heterosexual, you're saying like Zina. I mean, Zina is like one of the worst things you can do. It's like a big, big deal. And if Muslims are not taking that seriously, that's a disaster, right? It's a complete disaster, right? And if, if people don't understand that, you know, and, and then, okay, many riba like whatever i mean lots of other things you could just say well i don't see the reason for this like why should i follow this right so that paradigm is really really important to say wait a minute where do we get our morals and values from to begin with who knows and who doesn't know like what does it mean in generically speaking that we submit to divine guidance generically speaking right and then let's apply that to specific circumstances right and then that's part of it. The other part is that like the reality of the moral universe, this is something completely denied in our current uh, relativistic postmodern uh, social circumstances, right? There are things that are inherently right and inherently wrong. Now, our scholars have had lots of discussion about are things right and wrong literally in and of themselves or because Allah has commanded them and so forth. That's kind of a different point because from our perspective, we have the divine command. And we know that what Allah has commanded and prohibited, those things are right and wrong, right? Either, you know, again, whether they're right and wrong and Allah commanded them because of that reason, or they became right and wrong because he that's a different discussion. But when we know that Allah has forbidden something, right? That's an, ob from our perspective, that is an objective moral statement. It's an objective moral fact, okay? Just like, you know, whatever water is like H2O, uh, two heart, uh, hydrogen and one oxygen. That's an objective fact. That's not. That doesn't matter who what what you think about that. It's not. Uh, it's not subject to anybody's opinion. That's just what water is, right? So moral facts are like that. Like zina is haram. It's it's immoral. It's wrong. Doesn't matter what you think about it. Same sex behavior is immoral. It's wrong, right? In and of itself, inherently, doesn't matter what you think about it. Doesn't matter what any given society thinks about it, right? Um, drinking alcohol is is wrong. It's an immoral act. Right? It doesn't matter what you think about it. Right, Th Those are objective moral facts. So this idea of reestablishing for our youth, right, or establishing for them, right, because I grew up in an environment where there are no moral facts. I mean, ostensibly, there are no moral facts except for the ones that people actually care about. Now, when you start talking about LGBT, you say, well, I disagree. Okay, now you're wrong and bigoted. And you're, wait a minute, I thought you didn't believe in any moral facts. I thought everything was relative. No, no, but not this. Right. Or, you know, again, certain, um, I don't know, whatever other 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 presuppositions that people might have about gender, men and women, males and females. And so, right. People all of a sudden they're relativistic until you step on their territory where they really care about something. All of a sudden they're very absolutist. Right. Mm -hmm. And very dogmatic and very unwilling to kind of counter or countenance any kind of other position. Of disagreement. So no one can be a relative. I mean, that's the other thing. No one can actually be a relativist. People can can claim relativism, but it's a false claim. Because in the end of the day, people are relative or they, they play, they put on a relativistic hat 
uh, against things that they don't want, that they don't agree with. So when it comes to traditional sexual morality, many contemporary people will put on the relativist hat. Oh, you just do whatever you want, blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to something that they actually have deep convictions about, again, like woe unto you, right? If you dare raise a heckle or any type of, you know, uh, uh, objection or any type of even disagreement, right? Uh, to their moral paradigm, all of a sudden you will be demonized, you will be canceled, you will be, um, you know, told that you are a bigot, you are an immoral person, essentially, right? So, so the question is, it's not really, a, it's not really a question of relativism. It's a question of what is the actual, what is the actual paradigm that's correct? What moral judgments are actually the correct ones? And this is where Muslim youth need to realize, as Sister Asmat said, for us as Muslims, right? We recognize that that. Allah is the one who has the prerogative to set these parameters and he has revealed them to us, right? And honored us and 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 um and ennobled us by sending us guidance in that form, right? Of moral guidance. So that's number one. Uh the other other question is like once we have that general paradigm established, within that sister Asma also said. You know, when it comes to specific issues, I can kind of conjecture, oh, well, I can see some of the wisdom, some of the hikam that Allah has because Allah is hakim, Allah is wise, right? And I think when it comes to gender and sexuality, it's not a black box. Like, we shouldn't just say, like, of course we trust in Allah, but it's not just like, okay, I have no clue whatsoever why the rules are what they are, and I'm just going to kind of have this trust. We do have the trust, but I think that it's quite transparent as to why Allah has set the boundaries where he has set them. And so we need to also bring that discourse back, right? We need to bring back the reality of gender. The male is not like the female. Allah created the male. He created the female. They're not the same. We're both equally human, but males and females are not the same. And, and, and gender is not socially constructed. There are aspects of it that are culturally inflected. That's true. What counts as specific male dress or female dress in a given time or place, this changes. And I always say, if you look at, you know, the founding fathers of the United States back in the 18th century, they wore these big frilly, you know, wigs with these like frilly blouses and tights, right? That's not, that in our day is like very feminine clothing, the ruffles, the tights, and the, the kind of the, the poofy hair, the all of too. that is very feminine, right? So if you dress like that today, people would think you're dressed in drag. I mean, they'll recognize that you're kind of dressing 18th century, but if it weren't for that, everything would look like, if you're male, it'd look like you're kind of wearing drag because that's female attire today, right? But in their day, that was male attire. And women in that day dressed very differently. Women did not dress that way. They dressed very differently. So the males and the female, they were always distinct. And in our society, even today, we have a lot of clothes that's kind of uh, unisex. But nevertheless, I mean, you go buy a simple shirt, the male, the buttons are on the right. And, the, and for the women, the buttons are on the left. Why? The male is not like the female. Right. And, and the cut of the women is always a little bit more fitted around or wherever you can immediately tell a male shirt from a female shirt. Right. It's, it, this is just natural. So the very the specifics of what uh, of what constitutes male versus female expectations, behavior, um, dress, styles, uh, to some degree, to some degree is culturally inflected. And the Sharia recognizes that we recognize that there's an orphi component to this. But the underlying reality of the distinction is absolutely natural it's created by god it is and it is to be celebrated not suppressed and islam actually celebrates gender difference and this is where you see a, a clash collision you know like a, a collision head-on collision with the current paradigm because the current paradigm seeks to deny 
the reality of gender as much as possible, even to the extent of denying the physical reality of gender. And you have people saying, you know, men can have can menstruate and all of this stuff, which is complete. I mean, this is like this is complete disconnection from reality, right? Even physical reality, right? Let alone psychological aspects. But the but the thing is, this is neither neither is this um, consonant with scripture, nor is it scientific in any way, shape, or form. Like there's so many studies about the fundamental differences between male brains and female brains. You know, male uh, uh, every single cell of your body is coded male or female, and it matters. Right, it matters, um, and, and Islam again is a, uh, a is a realistic religion that deals with reality because it's it's from the creator of that reality, and you know uh, uh, gender differences. I mean, I wouldn't say gender differences. Gender is something that is a fundamental category, right? And it is something that Sharia recognizes, and something that it even I would say accentuates. So again, we have to realize that the whole notion that gender is just socially constructed and that it, it is not a natural phenomenon. This is completely false, right? So much of the current paradigm is literally based on, I mean, falsehood is like, that's the generous way of saying it. That's if you don't understand that it's a falsehood. And for people who do understand, it's, it's just a lie, right? It's Kevin, right? And so I think we need to, to also make this very clear to our youth. And this is not just like a subjective opinion. This is, first of all, from the creator of the universe. Second of all, it's backed up by empirical evidence too. I mean, we can see with our eyes, right? And you have to deny reality to an extraordinary degree in order to buy into, you know, the more extreme versions of these ideologies that are floating around today. And they're becoming so much more extreme over time, right? Every year, every, every year, the claims get more and more extravagant. And people just don't have any bearings. And so they have no way to kind of evaluate, let alone sort of, you know, fight back or, or have a, a type of counter narrative. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is I think that we need to, within our communities, we need to establish a, a positive Islamic gender and sexual sexuality paradigm. I just tried to do a little bit of that with gender. Like, what is gender? Why does it matter? Why do we care? Why should we celebrate gender difference rather than suppress it? You know, it's again, it's the opposite trend of current society, right? Uh, but and then also when it comes to sexuality, what is sexuality for, right? Uh, what are the uh, the inherent? What is the meaning of our body, our sexual organs? They're not just like these random body parts, right? They have a meaning. They have a purpose. There's a teleology. Telos means a purpose, right? And Islam is not as strict as say traditional Christianity or like Catholicism which literally forbids any type of sexual act, even among married couples, that is not potentially procreative, okay? Islam doesn't go to that degree because husbands and wives, they can enjoy each other physically, even when the woman, for example, is menstruating. Of course, they can have intercourse during that period, but they can do other things, which, which might lead to you know, sexual pleasure, uh, uh, climax and so forth, that is clearly not happening within a, uh, a, a specific instance that could lead to pregnancy because there's no intercourse. Right? We know that uh, pleasure within marriage is itself something that is valorized in Islam, whereas in tradi Christianity traditionally, this was seen as bad. You know, the flesh was considered just evil, uh, you know, ab initio. And for someone like Augustine, you know, St. Augustine, fourth century, has an enormous influence on, on, on Christian thought. He uh, led a very dissolute life as a youth, and when he became a Christian, he sort of, you know, had a reaction, I think, against the excesses of his, of his youth. And he 
said that, you know, sexuality, even among married couples, was like basically a necessary evil. It's necessary to for the species to survive, but in and of itself, it's evil because it's of the flesh. And married couples should just try to get it over and done with as quickly and as uneventfully as possible and and, and not and even enjoy it, you know. Uh, and, and so this has been a prevalent attitude, not maybe not universal, but this has been a, a kind of prevalent attitude in, in the Christian West for much of its history. And I think part of what we see today, honestly, is a reaction against this kind of very sex negative uh, uh, attitude towards religion. Now, traditionally, Christians thought Muslims were licentious because Muslims don't have those, you know, inherently negative attitudes towards sexuality. Um, we celebrate it, but only within the right context, right? Outside of that context, Islam is, in fact, very sex negative, right? Because it takes very strong and severe positions against uh, illicit sex, which is any type of sex outside of a legally bound relationship between a male and a female, right? So outside of that, Islam is, 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 is very, you know, very firm, right? And, and very kind of sex negative, but only towards illegitimate and illicit sexual behavior. When it comes to the proper context, it's, in fact, very positive. Uh, as Sister Esmet said, there's a sadaqah involved. You get, you know, rewarded, which the companions were surprised when the Prophet ﷺ told them that. They said, we're just satisfying our desires. Why would we get rewarded? Why would we, we, why would we get rewarded for that? And he said, do you not see if you were to do it in a haram manner that you would be punished? Well, therefore, you know, if you do it in a halal manner, uh, then you get rewarded for that. Right. And so what I'm saying is that within the proper context, which is a broadly reproductive context, that of marriage between a man and a woman, sexuality is uh, it's legitimate to enjoy it, even if each and every instance is not potentially life giving, which is the Catholic position. Right. So we have a more nuanced position and Muslim youth need to understand this. And they also need to understand that the current you know, um, state of society is very, very much an extreme. Uh, by historical standards, by cross-cultural standards, I mean, we're very much in an, in an extreme kind of um, uh, a situation right now. And it's not sustainable, frankly, because as I said earlier on, the bill of the sexual revolution is enormous. And it's coming in and there are more and more people talking about it. There are books being written. I read a book recently by Louise Perry called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She's a British uh, woman, I believe, a uh, um, a journalist or a researcher or both. I mean, journalists obviously research. Um, she's not Muslim. I don't even think she's Christian necessarily. She doesn't seem to be that religious, but she's just looking at the empirical evidence. She's looking at the devastating fallout of the sexual revolution on women and on men and on everybody and saying this is not sustainable. This is based on a lie. Women have been lied to since the 1960s. They've been sold false fantasies, right? And it's only made them miserable in the aggregate. And uh, she was asked in an interview, do you think that there is a kind of counter-revolution brewing? And she said, when I talk to young people and I talk to my peers and all of that, you know, I actually think there is, right? This is not sustainable. We should know that falsehood cannot last. Truth has come and, 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 and falsehood vanished, has vanished. Verily, falsehood is ever vanishing. And so Muslim youth need to realize, you know, all of the for all of the fire and fury, right, that we're hearing today, all of the, the you know, the loud voices, uh, this is not a sustainable paradigm. And, and I think the transgender movement and the excesses of it, right, have really brought that to the fore. Because it's not just like, okay, I have this kind of gay couple living next to me and they're sort of living their lives. 
I mean, you have a fundamental denial of just basic reality, right? And you have now this idea that, okay, if trans women are really women, like literally, then why shouldn't they compete in women's sports? And you have that Leah Thomas, you know, phenomenon. And this is, this is absurd and everyone sees it and you're not supposed to say it, but it's like girls train their entire lives and then they're immediately like permanently barred from ever winning competitions because now they have biological males competing with that. I mean, what kind of society can't just see that this is wrong? Right. But it's so there's so much ideolo ideological baggage and people are so deeply committed to the ideologies that they just won't see it because it's fundamentally contradictory at its basis. Because if you're going to start saying, well, wait a minute, you know, no, we're not going to allow so-called trans women to compete in women's sports. I mean, for people who don't know, trans woman is a male who has, you know, superficially transitioned to female. Of course, in Islam, you, you can't I mean, you cannot really change your gender. I mean, it's a superficial transformation. Um, which is not recognized in Islam to begin with. But the idea is that if you're going to start saying, well, we're not going to allow trans women to compete in sports, then you're kind of recognizing or admitting that, okay, they're not really women in the same way that biologically born females are. But then that goes against the whole uh, ideology, which is what? That not only gender, psychological, but even sex is something that's just constructed. It's mm -hmm. a social role. It's, it, it's, it's something that is tied to my personal inner subjectivity and not to any type of biological fact. This is extremely radical. This is an extremely radical um, uh, proposition, right? When it was first peddled, say, a couple of decades ago, this was just seen as way off the wall. You know, Judith Butler and some of these other people who had these radical theories about the constructedness of gender and sex, right? Um, and now this, this has become the dominant narrative that doesn't mean that's correct. doesn't mean it's correct. I mean, if it was preposterous 30 years ago, it's no less preposterous today. It's just that people can't see it because it's become so dominant, right? Yeah. Which should really give people, I think, uh, uh, pause because it's really scary to see the degree to which people en masse, like literally millions of people can just sign on to propositions that are so should be so obviously false. I mean, that are very obviously just going against the grain of reality. When you can get people to start saying things like men are menstruating, what kind of I mean, what can you what can you make people what, what is it that people that you can't get people to believe? That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Mm. You know, you tell them that the sky is green and they're going to say, yeah, the sky is green. You tell them women have penises, you know, right? Yeah. This is absolutely absurd. And, and you have many people saying these things with a straight face, with PhDs, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, it's completely unbelievable. And, mean, and, and this is something that, you know, I think really our youth have to be very, very aware of, yeah. right? Very aware of, and don't ever think that social, you know, look, just because everyone saying something Again, they were saying something very different five, ten years ago. So who was right and who was wrong? You know? And I always point out this this out to Muslims. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama ten years ago were against gay marriage. Forget about transgender. That wasn't even on the table. I was yet. just talking to somebody yeah. about this. Somebody just they were against gay marriage. Yeah. These are liberal Democrats. They're totally pro LGBT, pro you know, freedom, pro equality, pro dignity, pro everything. But marriage just is what marriage is. It's a man and a woman. That's a special thing, right? Nothing against our 
gay brothers and sisters and neighbors and friends and all of this and from their perspective, right? But marriage just is what it is, right? It, it, it has an inherent meaning, okay? That was 10 years ago. And then they both flipped, right? But literally within the last decade. And now you have some Muslims only 10 years later, just kind of conceding that it's like this obvious fact that, well, of course, everyone should just like, you know, marriage is just whatever, like, this is, this is absurd, frankly, right? You know, I, I mean, for things to be that slippery, it's like, what does it even mean to have a religion and to have a, I mean, a, a transcendental moral reference if you're not going to bring that transcendental reference into play precisely in moments like these and in situations like this where you have a society around you that's literally, you know, just flipping from one extreme to another, right? Uh, you have many Muslims today practicing Muslims are like way to the left, so to speak, of where, you know, your liberal Democrats were 10 years ago. <laughs> You know, where are you going to be in 10 years from now, yeah. right? Yeah. Pro-incest, pro, like, I don't know, public nudity or whatever. Yeah. You know, whatever the next trend is going to be. Yeah. And you're going to jump on in the name of, like, freedom and equality and, you know, minority rights and all. It's very superficial, yeah. right? But if people can be made to see, right, the where, you know, what it means not to have any type of reference point, then you lose all perspective as a society, Right. And we can just look at how societies change. You know, it was not too long ago where you had much more overt kind of racism. I'm not saying racism still doesn't exist, but it was much, much more overt 50 years ago, 100 years ago than it is today. People back then didn't think they were bad people. Well, that, that's just how things were. People were just naturally racist. And the society was like that. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, we don't accept that. We say, well, they were wrong. They were objectively wrong. Well, everyone was a race. You know, you read some of the authors, you know, Agatha Christie, for example, she was not known for her racial sensitivity. Some of her books, you know, it's very stereotypical Jewish characters and black characters and this and that, right? Um, how do we judge someone like that? Now they're sanitizing all of this stuff, right? Um, well, that was just her time and age. Do we excuse that or not? Right. We may say, okay, maybe she personally has a little bit less personal responsibility than if she were alive today because, you know, you just you know, you're affected by your environment, but we will judge the whole environment as having been wrong, right? That environment that produced people are just casually racist. Well, they were all wrong. Maybe they couldn't see it, but they were all wrong. And so if that was true for them, it's it can be true for anybody at any time. And it can certainly be true of our time and place today, right? And the only way that you would not see that is, again, if you have lost all sense of any type of moral objectivity, of an objective moral standard, and this notion that we actually have a transcendental standard, which is what revelation is all about, right? right. And so I think just giving some of these examples to, 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 to students or to, to youth, you know, what do you think, you know, you are just, if you're just going to, uh, you know, howl with the wolves, so to speak, and just kind of repeat what people say around you, then how are you any different from someone who was just a casual racist 50 years ago? Or in your own framework, a casual homophobe or something like that 50 years ago. Like, they were just repeating what everyone else said. Well, you're just doing the same thing, right? Yeah. So can I just, before we stop, uh, uh, can I just address, because you had asked the question, uh, um, you know, what if someone comes to me? I kind of went off on a tangent. Like, what if a youth comes to me and says, for example, because we also want to be practical, right? How do I deal with people in my own environment? If, if, if a Muslim youth comes and says, look, I mean, people are out now. I have a friend in school who's come out as gay or lesbian or whatever. You know, why can't I just treat that person fairly? You say, yeah, I mean, look, 
we treat everybody fairly. We treat everyone with kindness. We treat everyone, you know, with dignity. Uh, we are constantly mixing with people of all sorts of different backgrounds and beliefs and lifestyles and practices, many of which we may not agree with, right? There are people who are atheists. There are people who may believe in polytheistic religions. There may be people who, you know, engage in all sorts of practices that we would consider objectionable, like drinking alcohol, like committing zina, like doing all of these things, right? And, and, and how do we treat those people? We treat them, you know, with dignity, with respect, with kindness, without necessarily endorsing what they do or say or believe. I mean, that, that's, so why would it be any different in this case? You know, you could say you can treat a person decently and fairly and, and so on and so forth. It doesn't mean that you have to agree that, you know, what they're doing is, is right. And you have the right to kind of maintain that disagreement and not be considered some hateful bigot because why are you not considered a hateful bigot because you don't believe in Hinduism, for example, right? I mean, you say la ilaha illallah, if you're coming from a Hindu perspective in which are many gods, like this could be considered a very offensive statement, right? You've just negated all my gods. Well, yeah, that's my belief. Yeah, I don't believe in other gods. I believe there's one supreme creator of the universe and there are no lesser gods. Someone else believes something differently. Okay, I, I get along with them, but I, I'm not expected to endorse the legitimacy of their belief. I mean, my belief wouldn't be what it is unless I believed that theirs was wrong. That's just what it means to hold a belief, right? But you're not called out for being some hateful bigot just because you you believe in monotheism and other people don't, or other people are atheists. And so implicitly you believe that they have a wrong view about the existence of a God because they don't believe in the existence of a God. And, and you believe that the that's the only true reality, Allahu al-Haq, right? And so... So again, there's sometimes a lot of special treatment that's expected when it comes to the LGBT community. Other people, it's perfectly acceptable for you to sort of disagree with them and still be considered like, you know, that that's your right and you can still treat people decently. But when it comes to LGBT, unless you're fully on board and you march and you celebrate and you endorse and you affirm, you know, you're considered to be this unacceptable, immoral bigot. And that's that's simply a double standard, which Muslims should not should not tolerate it. It's, there's no basis for that whatsoever. And then the other thing is, if someone comes within our community and says to us, I myself have these feelings, I'm only, a, you know, I'm attracted to my own gender primarily or exclusively, or I feel, you know, that I'm the wrong, I feel that I'm the other gender. We have to realize, and this is a whole other discussion, maybe we can go into it at a different time, right? But I do want to leave on this note, because so far it's been like, kind of this external discourse. These are real issues, right? Same-sex attraction is something that is a real phenomenon. It is not very well understood where it comes from, why it why it stems, you know, why certain people have it and other people don't. This is, the, the jury is still out on this, okay? Um, we know that there's no gay gene, that's for sure. You're not simply born that way. That, that That's pretty much for sure now scientifically, but what the actual genesis is, we really don't have a very clear idea. Okay, but the idea is that people do discover within themselves, youth, you know, when they come of age and their friends start experiencing sexual feelings towards the opposite gender, all of a sudden, oh my gosh, what are they talking about? You know, they're talking about girls. I don't get it. Like, it doesn't do anything for me. And then they look at the owns like another male and they feel that, you know, what their peers feel towards women, they feel it towards men. They don't choose this. No one just decides, okay, I'm going to be attracted to you know, my own gender. So this is real. What does a person do with this? How does a person navigate this within the bounds of Islam? What does it mean for the person's faith? Are they any less of a Muslim because they feel this way? The answer is no, 
right? The idea is you are responsible for what you have control over, which is your actions, right? And to the extent that you don't have, that you didn't choose those kinds of attractions or orientation or however you want to call it, right? You're not Islamically liable for what you don't have control over. So we need to have a nuanced discussion around this. We need to understand that there are people who do struggle with these issues and that we can't just say, oh, okay, ignore it. It's a phase, you know, go get married and have a halal outlet or whatever. It's not nearly as simple as that. And we had scholars, you know, even in the West, just five, 10 years ago, giving very simplistic responses like that. We, we, that's not adequate, right? When it comes to gender dysphoria, it's clear that much of this is socially induced, right? Uh, socially constructed, right? If you want to be a social constructivist, go ahead here, right? It's very clear that there's a great degree of social contagion, that's a technical term for it, when it comes to uh, the, the, the extremely high uptick in gender dysphoria and non-binarism that's being reported by youth, right? That's clearly like there's a social contagion going on. Nevertheless, there are sort of hard cases of people who, even back in the day, when things were very clear and binary, people felt this type of severe gender dysphoria. So these are real conditions. And we have to be uh, better as Muslims in how we understand these things. We have to be more nuanced and we have to understand that there are people who really struggle and who need to be supported in their struggle, who need to be understood, who need to be accepted, who need to be affirmed. As Muslims struggling with these issues, and I don't mean affirmed in doing that, which Allah has prohibited, but affirmed as Muslims who have a very real struggle that can't just be swept under the carpet or ignored or ostracized or stigmatized. Okay, so this is the nuance that we have to have. And in the West, you didn't have that. You had one kind of paradigm. All of this was just complete, like, ugh, we don't want to deal with it. There was severe kind of any manifestation of any of these types of, you know, uh, desires or gender dysphoria or whatever was just immediately met with kind of social opprobrium without any kind of understanding where people were coming from in terms of what they're feeling, right? And the response to that was now the totally opposite extreme where not only are you, can we understand what you're struggling with, but this is who you are, it's your identity, you know, um, and it has to be completely fully endorsed and celebrated. Otherwise, you're basically like dehumanizing and delegitimizing the person's entire existence. Like these are two very extreme paradigms. And as always, Islam is the middle path. Right, Islam is the is the umuri The best of, 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 of matters is the middle, is the is the is the central course, right? Um, and so, as a, a community, we need people to be able to feel youth. They need to be able to turn to elders, to uh, to to mentors, to imams, and know that they can bring these kinds of issues if they're feeling them and struggling faithfully with them. Right? This does not mean that we endorse activist types who want to come and change the religion and impose standards on the community that violate Islam. Of course, this is not acceptable in this domain, just as it would not be acceptable in any other domain. People who want to come and start bringing alcohol to the Eid, you know, celebration, that's not going to be acceptable. Even if you drink on your own time, you're still welcome to come to pray to the mosque, but you're not going to push it on the community, right? So we don't endorse that type of activism, right? But at the same time, we do have to understand that there are real issues, especially in this environment, especially in this environment, because people are told this is who you are, right? And this creates, I think, a type of um, crisis for many young Muslims who feel these things that maybe they wouldn't have had several generations ago because, okay, I have these feelings, I either give in to them and that's haram and sinful, but then, okay, everyone sins and I repent or I don't give in to them. But this idea that this is your very identity, and now there's no place, quote unquote, there's no place for you in Islam. 
because there's no recognition and affirmation of, of your core self and all of this. This whole paradigm, which is, again, very specific to the contemporary West, even in the West, this is a new paradigm. It's historically contingent. It's not universal, right? But this paradigm is real. Just because something is socially constructed, it doesn't mean that it's not my house is constructed, but it's real, right? Okay. So these paradigms are real and we need to kind of also meet people where they are, uh, especially if they come with the issue themselves. As Sister Asana said, it's a very emotional issue for a lot of people, right? So we have to have also the emotional intelligence to to deal with people um, uh, where they are, right? And to, and to kind of try to help them see things in a different light, where as a Muslim, we don't base our identity on feelings, sexual feelings or desires or even behaviors, right? It's not who you are. This is an aspect of you, right? But this is not who you fundamentally are. And that paradigm itself is a trap, right? And we need to help people see through that and think beyond it. Although it can be very difficult because it's so dominant. Although again, it is a construct and it's, you know, if it's constructed, it can be deconstructed and that's exactly what we need to do. I see Sister Asma is back. Uh, so we didn't get into uh, the rest of it, but I did ask a request if you guys would like to come back for a part two because we kind of about to wrap up and that was just a, some of Dr. Sherry's closing statements. If you want to uh, add something to as well, some closing statements so that then we can wrap up the podcast and then, yeah. Inshallah. I mean, this topic is a really big topic and um, I just wanted to kind of, um, I guess, mention a couple of pointers. Um, one of them is that like, having a strong conviction in your religion and knowing like why you have this value system, uh, which is Islam, is very important in helping you face any kind of uh, fitna, any kind of test or challenge to your faith. That's uh, today, it's the LGBTQ question, tomorrow is gonna be something different. So regardless of what it is, you need to be strongly founded in your religion. Um, with that being said, I think it's really crucial for us to recognize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placed a balance in the world. And when we violate that balance, corruption arises. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the LGBTQ movement, um, the sexual revolution, everything happened because it was kind of a, a, an extreme response to another extreme. And Islam taught us to be balanced. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not shame us from having uh, sexual desires as long as we channel those desires in the halal way. Just as he doesn't shame us to love to eat delicious food or to, you know, have fun, as long as we do it in a halal way, in moderation, when the time is right, the place is right, then go for it, right? But, you know, anything in excess is now corruption, anything, right? And so having that balance is crucial. When we look at ourselves in the mirror as Muslims, we need to establish justice amongst ourselves when Allah says establish justice even if it's against yourself right you need to speak up the truth and stand for it in your family and in your community you will see that a lot of these problems will almost automatically resolve many of these again I, I'm not I'm not going to sit here giving you statistics because I don't have them but anecdotally a lot of these problems or why people start developing for example homosexual feelings Partially, it's because they've gone through some kind of trauma. They don't trust the opposite gender anymore. Um, they've seen a lot of corruption and they just don't want to deal with it. They want something safe. They want something comfortable. Or we're so promiscuous in our society that like, you know, what, this old boring thing is just old and boring. We want to try something new. Right. 
And, and these are all diseases of society that would be eliminated if we actually followed what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided us um, to do. So we would kind of naturally protect our, uh, our natural fitrah and instinct uh, in that sense. So for us, it's really crucial to kind of, um, uh, kind of rein in what we're looking at what we're listening to, what type of music, what type of podcasts, what type of books are you reading? What are the scenes that are being described? What are you watching, right? This affects your psyche. And, um, you know, there was one time when the Prophet was actually looking to get married. Um, and he told his wives, you know, I'm looking to get married again, make suggestions, make recommendations, go look out and whatever, and, and let me know if there's somebody that you recommend. And they went and they recommended this one woman. And multiple people recommended this woman to him. And he told them, stop mentioning her name to me because she is my sister through nursing. She, we, One woman has breastfed me and breastfed her, even though we're different generations. So he doesn't feel like she's his sister. She isn't one of the kids that grew up with him and they were all brothers and sisters, right? Foster brothers and sisters. So he doesn't have that emotional bond of she's my sister, but she is my sister. So stop bringing her up to me in that context of marriage. Because if I keep bringing somebody up to you in that context, soon enough, you're going to start thinking about it that way, right? And, and this is kind of where I, I kind of mentioned earlier about I have to draw the line for myself where I'm not going to cross that line. And so Rasulullah is teaching us, listen, you can't just keep talking about something. And ultimately, you will start feeling that way or you will start thinking that way. And this is kind of where it comes to your question about the like friends and what if I have friends? The idea is, you know, the Prophet ﷺ said the person follows the religion or the way of his friends. So look closely and watch carefully for who you befriend and especially your closest friends. And this is something that's so true that even modern coaches and success, you know, uh, coaches and mentors will tell you, listen, tell me who your top five friends are. I'll tell you who you are right? Because it, it gives me a description of who you are, your ideas, and where you're going to go. So I need to choose who I surround myself with, what ideas I surround myself with, because that will affect me ultimately, uh, and how I will turn out. Um, the other note, if I may, is identity. In Islam, we have two types of identity. There's the identity that was given by God, which is I was born male or female. That's something I could not choose. Allah gave it to me. Uh, I was born to these parents. I didn't choose who my parents were or my siblings, right? That's not a choice that I made. This identity is, is kind of, if you will, the parameters for my test in dunya. Allah didn't ask me, who did you choose your good parents? He didn't. He didn't do that. He said, now, given these are your parents, you need to treat them in the best way possible. Given that these are your siblings, whether they're good, bad, great, it doesn't matter. How are you going to respond to that environment? You are from this ethnic background. You didn't get to choose that. You didn't get to choose where you were born, right? These kind of identity markers that Allah gave you, this is part of your test. You take it. Now the test is how are you going to respond? Are you going to have that blind kind of uh, herd mentality? My people do good. I'm going to do good. People do bad. I'm going to do bad. Rasulullah said, nope. They do good, you do good. They do bad, you do what's right, right? So this is this now comes to the choice. There's the other identity, which is my choice. And this is kind of a, a conversation where the, the Sahaba used to kind of sit and talk and the Arabs used to, you know, um, 
uh, pride themselves in their lineage. I am the son of so-and-so and my dad achieved this and my uncle and my great-grandfather achieved all these things, right? And then Salman al-Farisi, it's his turn around the circle to speak up. Salman al-Farisi, he's not Arab, he's Persian, he's kind of a foreigner. Um, so he says, Abil Islam, my father is Islam. La abali siwahu, I have no father except for Islam, right? Uh, and Umar radiallahu anhu, Umar ibn al-Khattab said, he got it. Wallah, he's right. That is the most highest ranking lineage you can ever have, right? My father is Islam. It's a choice that I made, my submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is my lineage. And, and that is my identity. And so you have, for example, the hadith of the Prophet where he says that, you know, a person will continue to speak the truth until they are written with Allah as an identified, as a truthful person, a siddiq. And a person will continue to lie one, two, three, ten times until he is written with Allah, a liar. That's an identity that you chose through perseverance and continuous work to create for yourself. I could be a liar today and I could choose to become a truthful person. That identity is a choice that I make. And this is the identity that Allah is going to ask me about on the Day of Judgment. We're going to come to Allah on the Day of Judgment without clothes, without anything. So even like the, the, the fashion industry where like, this is who I am and my... It's all going to be stripped. The only thing that really matters is your faith in your heart and the actions that you've done, right? And that's your true identity. And that's what makes a person rise high up, higher than the level of angels or way down below even the level of animals, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says mentions in the Quran. So for us, the identity, there's the identity factors that I can't select and for that, I have to accept because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do not envy each other for privileges that you were given. This is in Surah An-Nisa, the Surah of Women, chapter 4 in the Quran, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, don't envy each other for privileges because these are gifts from Allah that you did not earn. So it's a privilege. My health is a privilege. I didn't earn it. My wealth is a privilege. My The family that I have, I didn't choose that. One day they're here, today they're not, tomorrow they're not. Like, I can't choose that. It's a gift from Allah for a temporary time. It's a privilege to test me. In another ayah, Allah says, to test you, how are you going to act? So for me, my wealth or my poverty or whatever is, is a test. How are you going to deal with it? Me being a male or a female, that's a test. How are you going to be to the opposite gender, to your own gender, right? Like, how are you going to pass your test? Allah gave you these parameters. So if I don't accept what Allah has given me for things that I cannot change, how I look, you know, my genes, I can't, I can't change that. <laughs> Allah gave it to me, right? But what can I change? I can change my habits. I can choose, as the Prophet ﷺ said, right? being patient is by practicing patience. <laughs> being forgiving is by practicing being forgiving. <laughs> you, some people, it comes more naturally to them. Others, I have to develop it. So that identity is a choice that I make. And that's the real identity that matters and that Allah SWT is going to ask me about. He's not going to ask me about my race or my sex. <laughs> I gave it to you. So what did you do with it? And so this is where as Muslims, our identity, we have to be really conscious of that. And that's where, again, you know, your choice of friends, your choice of what you intake and what you output 
This is the conscious God consciousness, your taqwa. That's what makes you who you are. So make sure that it's something that will be pleasing to you when you meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Jazakallah khair to both of you guys. That was a nice way to get to wrapping that up. Um, definitely want to bring you guys back on so we can talk about this more because there's so much more. Like I was telling, uh, talking to the team about this topic is like a like an elephant. It's just, it's humongous. It's, it's, I guess, pun intended elephant in the room, right? But it looks like today the points that we got to definitely are talking about, you know, um, basically deconstructing what it looks like in terms of the Western civilization's belief. And it's a belief that they impose upon everybody through globalization of that our way of life is right. This is what we believe. This is how things should be. And how you should really put a magnifying glass on that and really search at it, pick at it, criticize it, look at it, discuss it, test it out, you know, see these theories and things that they make as uh, pre-assumptions that, oh, yeah, everybody knows this to be true. But is it really true? Is it actually true? Right. Is there any weight to it? And what is it in comparison to the Quran and the uh, God centric view that we have? Right. Having taqwa, thinking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, thinking about what the Quran says, the many ayat about the gender relations between the man and the woman, how uh, we're created in pairs, how we're created for each other and things of that nature. And also just think about the uh, like sister Asma brought up wonderfully, you know, um, these restrictions and what are the benefits, you know, and. But first of all, committing, of course, right? Committing, saying, yes, if this is true, I believe it. You know, it's kind of like the story of Abu Bakr and uh, the Isra and Miraj, right? Wow. He just believed it. He didn't ask questions. He said, did Muhammad say, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? They said, yes. He said, all right. That's it. I believe him, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things. If Allah said it, we believe it. We don't understand it, but we believe it. And that's what we follow. And as time progresses, you'll see, of course, because that's the thing I love about Islam, right? It's grounded not just in the spiritual aspect, but because it's a lie, it's also grounded in logic. So eventually through time, we will catch up as like sisters, Asma brought up with the different surahs, right? We will catch up as human beings to the knowledge that has been sent down to us. But until then, we should just like accept and follow you know, I think there's a great points to uh, really share and people that takeaways that you should take away from this uh, particular episode today. Um, real quick, the revive packets for navigating pride are going to be coming out um, around the time this podcast drops. So please get your revive packet for that. Also, um, if you aren't a part of Muslim American society and you're interested and would like to learn more, please um, check out the website, MuslimAmericanSociety.org, if I'm not mistaken. Um and yeah, I think we gonna we gotta do a part two to this definitely, inshallah. So, I, big thank you to both of our guests. Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, we pray Allah Subhanahu wa Taala uh, preserves and protects the Ummah and our youth moving forward and the many challenges we face. Um, uh, yeah, so everybody, this is your host Abdullah Freeman. I will see you guys uh, next time, and I pray everybody's safe. See you all. Assalamu alaikum. Signing off.